So I got an email this morning from Google and I'm not sure whether you get it actually, Sven, but we get an email every month from Google saying, here is your performance on Google search. The search, yeah. Yeah. This month we, we hit 22,000 clicks through from search terms on Google through to the site. And we were shown in Google search results almost 850,000 times. Uh, and I like these emails. They're kind of, they're a nice kind of every month. You just see whether you've grown a little bit more and grown a little bit more. But one thing I spotted this week, which I don't think I'd seen before, is there's a section in that email that says your top growing pages. Right. And yeah. there were a couple of interesting ones in there this time that I thought were worth pointing out. So the top growing page this month is a package page uh, for a package called Swift UI Shimmer, which I think... If I remember rightly, I linked to in iOS Dev Weekly when it first came out. Is it? But it's a it's our top growing page in uh, in this month, which I I was quite surprised about. It's it's a it's a decent control. It's a Swift UI view that shows. Um, do you remember the old slide to unlock? Yes. Yeah. Uh, text on the home yeah. screen, and it used to have a little white shimmer that. So it basically does that for any text in Swift UI. So that is our top growing package this month which i thought was interesting interesting but our second top growing package or top growing link that people land on when they have searched through google was a documentation page oh wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's the documentation for gidb query right yeah and it's one yeah. very specific page in that documentation it's an article actually um, it's an article called MVVM and Dependency Injection. Um, <laughs> and it's a, a relatively long article that's in the documentation on the GRDB query documentation set. And that is our second top growing link from Google search this month, which I was quite surprised about. Well, that is a super clickbaity title, isn't it? MVVM and Dependency Injection. That's like catnip <laughs> for any, any developer, Swift developer or any developer in, in all languages. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. And then just to roll, just to round out the uh, the, the trio, because there were three links uh, in this uh, report. Um, the third top growing link this month was to the MQTT NIO package, which is the event-driven Swift client for MQTT. If I'm not mistaken, that's the protocol underlying Rabbit MQ, which is a messaging queue. Is it? Yeah, I think so. I, I used to play around with that. Ages ago, um, in very early Swift days, I, I sort of, I think I wrote a little um, a wrapper around one C library that, that deals with that. Interesting. Is there any indication why that first package, for instance, you mentioned is picking up? Is there a search term, term associated with it that has sort of picked it up? Um, not that I could see, certainly not in the report that Google sends me. Right. Uh, we could potentially dig in through the search console to see something like that. But, but no, there was nothing, nothing obvious. What I will just do, though, is give a quick shout out to the three authors of those pages. So SwiftUI Shimmer is Vikram Kriplani, GRDB Query is Gwendol Rue, and the MQTT NIO is Stephen Robert. Nice. Just to give them the credit that they deserve. And so then from there, I looked into our Google search results, just our analytics package. So we use a, a package called Plausible for analytics on the Swift package index. It is a privacy focused analytics package that doesn't tell 
as anything about who you are. Uh, it doesn't even have a cookie, so it has. This is a cookieless analytics platform uh, that just records statistics on how many people visit which pages on the site, and. Our top search terms there have a couple of really interesting items in them this month. So again, looking only at the last 30 days, you've got all of the obvious ones, like obviously our most popular search term is Swift Package Index and Swift Packages and yeah. things like that. And then you've got all the search terms that you would associate with popular packages like Alamo Fire, Swift Lint, and IQ Keyboard Manager has all consistently been in our, in our top searched packages. But there's a new entry this month, which is we are starting to get some traffic from the search term OpenAI Swift. Oh, yes, I saw that. Yeah, I usually check out the Google search stuff as well. And I did notice that that search term started appearing first in December with all the OpenAI stuff. Right, yeah. So if you look at the history, you know, it, it, it tracks your ranking to that search term and it only started appearing in December. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, it's always interesting to, to see which bits of you know which packages within the index are getting traffic and and if there are trends around that as well yeah i usually look at that a bit as well not in too much detail and just to recap on that for, uh, on one of those first numbers getting on for a million impressions of our site on for people on google within just this last month which is kind of crazy yeah i always wonder how that's come because that doesn't really line up with the page views that we see in plausible right no that means that people are seeing seeing a link to our site and not clicking it <laughs> <laughs> so it's not the best it's not the best statistic i'll give you that <laughs> this is the top of the funnel right <laughs> that's right it is it is literally at the top of the funnel yeah Right. Well, if since we're talking about news, um, there's a couple of things we could talk about with respect to the project the implementation. So one change we made over the last two weeks was adding support for documentation builds on Linux. And uh, that's actually been requested uh, for a while. I think the issue was first opened in uh, December. Uh, and the two first packages that actually wanted to have support for that were Benchmark and Frostflake by Joachim Hasila. And that was one of those tasks that seemed pretty straightforward to implement. Actually, when you run this package build documentation generation on Linux, that works fine out of the box. And it did work pretty much uh, instantly on first attempt when I added it to our builder. But then everything sort of stopped and yeah, I soon arrived at these existential questions. Well, what can I actually do? Are there other skills that I can market? Is this my profession? Because I couldn't actually ship the doc set that was created to our um, uploader because it ended up in, in a nested directory and I could not for the life of me figure out why that was. And it turned out that cp-r so the unix copy-r which we were using to stage the documentation sets you know, because we have to do a couple of things differently from building them normally because if you have multiple targets if you rebuild documentation with a different target that actually wipes the previously generated docs so what we need to do is we need to copy them to a staging area and then for each target copy them to that you know staging area over each other and then also merge a json file that tracks all the targets but for some reason the nesting was wrong on Linux and it turned out the the reason was that cp-r behaves differently between macOS and Linux and that's kind of 
weird because you'd think a common command like that yeah. wouldn't actually show that. And and it wasn't even consistent. That's the thing. I, I stopped trying to figure this out because by that point, I was so deep down the rabbit hole, there was no light to be seen. And I thought, right, I just, I know how to fix it. I'm not even going to try and figure out why that is. I actually arrived at the point where if I ran the command back to back on Linux, the second time it copied it the way I expected. What? It's like... I'm not. I I tried this multiple times, but I, I had to stop because I thought I'm I'm going nuts here. <laughs> That's so odd. Anyway, it's it's all working now. I actually I I brought this up now. I regret that I brought it up because I, <laughs> I just get reminded of how crazy that was. So let's talk about that side of it. I think the interesting bit there is why people might want to do a doc build on Linux because yeah, it, it is. You're right. It's a it's a feature that people have been asking for and there's a couple of reasons you might want to do it if you don't need any uh, apple platform specific frameworks then you it's likely that your package is going to compile on linux that's yeah obviously there are intricacies that might go wrong on a linux build but but generally if you don't need any apple platform frameworks then you you're in good shape for uh, linux and if there was anything that you're doing Linux specific, you might only have Linux compatibility. Yeah. And suddenly we can't generate docs for you. And that's actually the case for these packages. So Benchmark, um, I know for a fact, is is Linux only. And I, I presume Frostflake as well. And Benchmark is Linux only because it it actually needs a platform dependency. It, it um, I think it's called jmalloc. So it uses a custom malloc uh -huh. which actually needs we had to actually provide extend our builders um dependencies for the linux builder to make that work you you can also i mean it can run on macOS as well because you can install it via brew but our machines don't have that installed so in the compatibility matrix the package currently actually as it stands doesn't compile on macOS, and it's actually easier to prepare the whole machinery on linux because it's easier to manage the dependencies there I bet there are not a very large number of packages that are Linux only in our index. I'd be interested to know uh, how many of those there are. Well, maybe there might be a quiz about that next time, <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if I remember. Uh, yeah, I think that would be an interesting stat, yeah. Um, and the other thing we gained since last time was Doxy build flag on the build details page. So. What that does, it shows you on the build details page, which is, which is the page where we list mm -hmm. all the builds for a package, you know, per Swift version and Swift platform. So it's a big matrix of all the builds. It's the click through from the smaller compatibility matrix on the package page. And because we only build the doc set for the latest Swift version and the platform you choose, or macOS SPM, if you don't choose, that's the default. We have a little icon next to the to the actual build that is responsible for generating the docs um, so that if there's anything wrong with your docs and you want to check the logs, that's the place to go and and check out the build with the little icon next to it and see if, if there's something obvious going wrong. This was a feature that both you and I didn't really need it because we know the logic as to which build generates documentation, but to a package author, it was completely opaque where the documentation build was actually happening and so that was that was causing people not huge headaches but 
but but it was causing people problems of not really understanding how we were doing the documentation building now as soon as you go onto that page you see the little icon um and you can just say okay if you hover over it i think i believe there's a tooltip that says this build generated documentation or something like that and you can then click here and see the build go and then the documentation and if anything went wrong you can see uh, the logs from that build exactly and actually so a little bit of trivia on the uh, github project there we had a a project you know the github projects like kanban board type uh thing we had a github project for documentation generation support that was the last ticket in that project and that, it's been the last ticket in that project for <laughs> many months uh and so it was nice to finally close that uh, project off nice i hadn't actually seen that project board in a while so yes it was the only one and i i i closed it as we closed that ticket <laughs> nice well and the the final thing we could maybe briefly mention is um that was quite interesting also there was a, a search issue around syntax so if you searched for syntax one of the packages you most likely are going to be interested in is apple swift syntax right i mean that sort of sounds like a a common thing to look for and that was ranking unexpectedly low so it only showed up on the second page the reason that happened was that syntax by itself wasn't actually mentioned anywhere in the package description or the package name anywhere where we looked it wasn't by itself it was always in the pascal case swift syntax and the problem with that was we used postgres's word stemming to find word boundaries but the problem is postgres is sort of case insensitive it it doesn't actually generate two words out of that it doesn't see the word boundary in swift syntax so it it was blind to syntax actually appearing in that phrase and there's no easy way to teach it to do that there are ways to do it but they aren't actually easily doable for us um with our hosted postgres there was luckily the package name and not the package name the repository name is actually swift dash syntax so and and that was an oversight we didn't actually index or rank on the repository name itself so that actually saved us in that case we were able to then extend our um word stemming you know made that part of the postgres word stemming thing and then it could break um these two apart by the you know taking out the dash and recognizing swift and syntax separately and that fixed the the ranking right but it was really i mean that's a chance if if apple had named that a uh, repository swift syntax caval case as well <laughs> that's actually would have wouldn't have been anything we could have done on our end to to fix the ranking easily so maybe package authors something to bear in mind if if you use camel casing in in your your descriptions and stuff maybe also if these are important individually and you can already see that they aren't appearing individually maybe stick them in a keyword or something you know like if if syntax was a keyword we would have picked it up uh, or just you know as a single word in the description that's that's always a good thing to maybe have duplication there with a couple of different spellings to make sure that it can be picked up and i think the other thing to mention here for package authors is that your package name does not need to be the same as your repository name yes and you can you can be a little more uh, not descriptive is the wrong word but you can you don't have to use so many hyphens and things like that in your package name because that's a different field it's just a string um whereas a lot of people use the same naming for their repository uh, their repository name and their 
package name, but we do show the package name, we do search on the package name, uh, and so it's worth uh, mentioning that. And in fact, that topic comes up in one of my package recommendations today, so uh, stay tuned for that. <laughs> right. Well, that's a segue. <laughs> Maybe we should start there. Do you want to kick us off then? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I actually bookmarked this a week or so ago, and I bookmarked it partially because it sounded interesting, and partially because the package name and the repository name were an interesting thing to talk about. So the package is called PUID, which stands for Probably Unique Identifiers, which I really like. I love the name. And it's by an organization, or I, I don't know the, the, well, I guess I do know the name because we exposed the author. It's written by Paul Rogers, and it's in a, an open source organization called PUID. And at the time that I bookmarked it, the PUID organization had seven or eight different implementations of PUID in different languages, and each repository didn't even include the word PUID. It was just the name of the language. So the repository for PUID and Swift was PUID as the organization slash Swift, and then there was PUID Dart, PUID Ruby. And I thought that was a a bold choice because to not have the name of the name of your package at all in the repository aim only the language I, th I thought maybe this is going to struggle a little bit since bookmarking it uh, when i came to open up my um my bookmarks today it has been moved and it is now called swift puid uh, as in the repository so it looks like the author of that realized the problem realized because it's obviously not unique to the swift package index this is gonna be an issue everywhere but um they renamed all of their uh, uh repositories and it's back in the uh so the package name is still just puid uh but now the repository also has swift puid in it as well so it basically is a little bit like uuids but it is um it gives you lots of different options on how to generate probably or potentially unique identifiers yeah and actually that is one of my picks as well and i actually noticed the exact same thing when it first showed up and even i i, I bookmarked it as well like early i think it it was released or added uh, right after we recorded last time and it was still right i my bookmark was also still swift and, and i noticed like when i came back to it um while preparing i noticed that it had changed but i i luckily remember that i saw the name change so i wasn't confused because i ended up on a 404 and i thought well i'm i'm sure when I added this, it was there. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it, it is an interesting package, and um, I actually played around with it a bit, and I found it really interesting. So, a couple of aspects that are interesting about it beyond UUIDs, which give you a fixed 128-bit, you know, random identifier. You can you can choose your total number of bits that you, that you want. But what you can also do is, um, and all of this works in a playground, so you can use our try in a playground um, feature to pull down the package and play around with it. It's quite interesting and instructive. You can also choose your total numbers, number of IDs you need and the collision risk you're, you're willing to deal with. And then it'll pick a length of the ID it generates you know, to, to match those requirements. So for instance, if you want to generate 100k IDs with a collision risk of one in a trillion, one to 10 to the 12th, it generates 15 characters. And if you instead want to generate 10 billion IDs with that same risk, it'll be 22 characters. 
Um, that just takes account of that if you generate lots more, obviously you need more you need more characters to have the same low risk of, of collisions. And then it is very configurable, so you can choose from a wide range of representations like alpha, alphanumeric, hex, uh, even your custom character sets that are used to you know map the randomly generated uh, you know entities to characters and and as a representation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice package. The author also throws some shade on UUIDs in the in the readme file. I did not see that. <laughs> I'm going to read a sentence from now. There is simply no such thing as a universally unique ID, regardless of the UUID moniker, <laughs> rather than blindly use a one-size-fits-none-solution. <laughs> PUID allows full control so that WISC can be explicitly declared as appropriate for specific application need. <laughs> oh, shots fired, UUID. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think with with all you know that said about the package, I think it it bears repeating. Uh, with uh, kind of security related packages like these um, or this one in your dependencies, make sure you review in detail. Yes, you know how it's actually implemented and and do some testing. I I suppose it it looks it looks really well done it has documentation and everything supports lots of platforms and talks about lots of things with an air of authority that gives you a, a, the sense that this is this is very solid but do double check uh, documentation hosted on the swift package index as well that's always how they get us isn't it all right so if i stole your first one what are you going to replace uh, what, what are you going to replace it with i'm going to replace that with a package called mac control center ui Oh, well, so now we're even because you've just stolen one of mine. <laughs> okay, we, we'll both be scrambling this week. And this is by uh, Stefan Andrews. And I actually had use for that package last week um, because I was building a little menu extra app as a, as a personal tool. And I came across the limitation that if you have a menu extra, so menu extras can have two menu styles. One is the menu style and the other one is the window style and when you do that so the menu style re renders buttons like normal swift ui buttons like normal window buttons and you can also have text that are just menu items that that only show the text but aren't active but those are the two options you have really if you throw a custom view in your menu bar builder that actually doesn't get rendered in that menu style what i had was both menu items and a custom view. So I wanted to have a Swift chart in the menu item. You can do that with a window style, but then buttons render like buttons in the in the menu bar, which looks odd, right? It's a button instead of a menu item. So right. if you actually want to have proper menu items, you effectively need to build them on your own, you know, to rebuild what they look like. And that package does that for you, although it does it in the control center style. So that's slightly different, I guess, from a normal menu style, but is it is quite suited for a menu extra. So I, I found that really nice and it gave me a very easy drop-in replacement for the thing I wanted to do, have this mix of regular menu items and then, you know, richer UI elements um, like my uh, Swift chart in there. So that's that's a really nice package. It has a, a nice example. So if you look at the page, you see what it looks like. and. And it does more than just have, you know, what I just described, menu items that you can throw in. It has actually, it replicates the elements you see in the normal control center, you know, like you 
have these round buttons where you can choose between options. Like if you look at your control center, can, for instance, pick between your uh, networks or have sliders like your sound um, level and your, your brightness and uh-huh. that slider is replicated. So have these controls in addition to, you know, just regular menu items and the ability to throw any um, views in there. And it, it looks like the normal control center. I wouldn't be able to spot a difference between the two. So it looks like a really nice and complete package. This continues a long tradition of Apple introducing a slightly different style of UI somewhere in macOS. Yeah. And then the community going down and copying it. And the first time I remember that happening was back in the Interface Builder 3 days, the Xcode. Xcode 3, Interface Builder 3, which is when I first started writing uh, Objective-C code. And at the time, the Cocoa controls were all light mode. And of course, everything in macOS was light mode until just a few years ago. But there was a set of dark mode controls that Apple had for the the little panels that were dark. So for... Ah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they, were, they weren't used all over the place. Yeah. And Cocoa at the time could open up a dark panel, but you couldn't... If you put any controls in them, they would look awful on there (laughs) because they were only light uh, controls and so there was a framework and interface builder 3 plugin uh which is something that i'm not going to explain but but google interface builder plugins if you want to if you want to go down that rabbit hole um so it was in fact the the website is still up and around we'll put it in the uh, show notes so the person who wrote it was brandon malkin and still on Brandon's site under the uh, path BW Toolkit is the website for BW Toolkit, which is a set of Cocoa controls that fit perfectly in those dark panels. Um, and I remember using that in my very first Mac app that I wrote way back in 2006, maybe 2005, 2006. And so thank you, Brandon, for that. Uh, and this, I, this reminded me of that because it's, you know, Apple have done something a little bit custom. People like it. So everyone wants to use it. And here's the here's the package that lets it uh, happen. Unfortunately, these days, you don't get the Interface Builder <laughs> toolkit. Uh, sorry, Interface Builder plugin. <laughs> or actually, should I say, thankfully, you don't get the Interface Builder plugin. Yeah, that's all Swift previews, right? They were troublesome. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, my next one is, um, is a double one. And... It's a couple of packages uh, that have both had releases in the last day or two, and they are both related to what we talked about in the uh, Google search results thing. One of them is called GPT Swift by Dennis Muller, uh, and the other one is called OpenAI Kit uh, by a company called Future, Future Group. And they're both basically API clients for the OpenAI Open Chat GPT. API. That's a, that's a very difficult <laughs> phrase to say. OpenAI ChatGPT API. <laughs> I that's, say that five times fast. <laughs> so yeah, uh, the reason I'm kind of, so obviously ChatGPT and the OpenAI APIs that they've recently released are everywhere at the moment. And just this last weekend, I was down in. Uh, London and a friend of mine is working on and it's the, it's the first time I've actually seen anyone really embed the API proper into uh, an application they're building a 
uh, a web application for, well, it's an already existing product. It's called Readily. And they're using the OpenAI API to do a couple of really interesting things. The most interesting, I think, is they are relating. So when, they, when you search on this site, you obviously got your search term that you entered. And then you've got all the search terms in the database, all the metadata about the, the items that you're searching for. And he's using the OpenAI API to generate hints as to why the search term that you entered matched the results that came back. So it's you're searching for books, basically. And if you search for murder mystery, and it brings back some books, and some of those books might say matched because it's a mystery set in, um, you know, set in Sweden or something like that. And so it's 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 generating text to relate those two things together. And I thought that was such a clever use of uh, an, an AI like this, not something I've seen used before. And so when I saw the GPT Swift and the open AI kit uh, packages fly by, I, um, I instantly looked at them because it's quite different using the API for open AI than it is to use just the chat interface. Yeah. And you build up these prompts that can be quite quite a lot larger than I expected them to be. You know, some of the prompts that he was showing us at the weekend were, I don't know, hundreds, 500, 600, 700 words of prompt. Oh, wow. Okay. Really interesting. <laughs> uh, yes, it's, it's much deeper than I first thought it was. Interesting. Have you used ChatGPT for anything? Um, not anything. I've, I've you played with it. I, I tried to get it to write a couple of emails, yeah. but I... I ended up editing them so much that they were, it, it actually took me longer just to, I should have just written them. Right. <laughs> um, I also just, uh, with last week, I got access to the Bing AI search beta, which I've been playing with a little bit. And it's better than I expected. I think Microsoft are making a little bit of a misstep with it because I think they have an opportunity here to, to really make a splash with this because it is quite good. And the problem is, is that it forced you to use uh, Microsoft Edge as your browser to interact with it. Yeah. So even though it's just a web page, they're, they're taking it as a Microsoft Edge uh, marketing opportunity, which, you know, there's pros and cons of, of that for them. But it did put me off a little bit. Right. But I have played with it, and it's better than I expected. It's very, it's quite different to ChatGPT because it has live access to the internet. And so you'll ask it a question and it will do one or more web searches behind the scenes and it will tell you that it's doing web searches and then it will take the results of those web searches and feed that along with your prompt into the API and bring back a, a, a generated response. Right. I haven't actually done, you know, played with any of these um, and I think the main reason is, I mean, I find this super impressive, all the examples I see, but it's also super scary that it just makes up stuff you know i'm and i'm not sure how right common a problem that is but just the fact that it does happen for me taints the whole concept as impressive as it is that it can see these things how would you ever be able to trust that the thing you'd got just now mm -hmm. where it maybe isn't obvious to you that it just made this stuff up you know because sometimes it, it might be obvious because you you would know the domain but if you don't how do you trust that? How do you rely on the results that you're getting? I, that's the thing that I struggle with most with these. 
I also struggle with that. But actually, one of the things that Bing is doing is quite interesting in that it's, let's say you ask it a question and it comes back with two or three options as potential results for your query. It will also cite the sites that it got the information from underneath its response. And so you can click through and find the web page that, that the answer that was generated got its kind of where it got its data from, which I think is a really good move for a little bit of transparency on this because you're right that this is the biggest problem with it. The other thing I think that's worth just, I, I don't know, we're not, this is not a AI chat GPT podcast, but, but now, now we're talking <laughs> about it. The other thing that I think is really important is to pick the right use for this. Yeah. So chat GPT is a literally a general purpose AI. And I think it's a bit early for that. It's very impressive and it makes amazing demos and you can have, um, a lot of fun playing with a chat GPT chatbot. But I think my friend's example of using it for very specifically relating why did this search term map to this search result, which actually, if it gets it wrong, yeah. not the end of the world. I think that's a great use. I, I think that's exactly key, right? That you pick a low risk environment where you know, small or even bigger mistakes aren't, aren't that critical. Yeah. None of us even knew this existed, let's say six months to a year ago. Um, and for it to have come this far, this quickly, I think the, the, the chances of this fading away into nothing, I think are very, very slim at this point. Yeah. Um, but we are absolutely on the precipice of an enormous, I think it's, it's potentially, um, a revolution, um, because I think this is going to be quite a significant step forward, not just chat GPT, but if you look at all of these generative API, um, AIs that we've seen in the last year, image generation, text generation, code generation, uh, music generation, and, and that kind of stuff. It's, it feels like there's a wave of this stuff coming. Yeah. For, for better or for worse. I mean, I'm for better or for worse. Yes. I mean, the, the other thing I get the sense not, not having played with any of it, but I get the sense that a lot of the impressive examples are also cherry picked, right? You mentioned just now that you let it write a couple of emails and ended up editing, you know, if, if enough people yes. run this enough times, you know, it'll, it'll produce impressive results every once in a while, maybe even a lot, but the, you know, the question is how often, how often is it just not great? And the thing, especially with the code generation is. I enjoy writing code much more than reading it. If someone took away the writing part and all I had to do was, was, you know, be a pull request reviewer, that would be terrible. I, I never actually want to be in that role. Um, so I'm not sure that aspect of it is, is all that beneficial. Um, I am really torn actually. I, I am tremendously excited about it on one hand and the old man in me is very fearful and, uh, resistant to change in the other hand. I think the, the co-pilot one, just we should move on from this topic, but just to, uh, to add one last thing, which I've written about a couple of times in iOS Dev Weekly, the co-pilot issue for me is the training data that they used for the, oh, yeah. Yeah. For the GitHub co-pilot included uh, GPL licensed code. And we know that because there was a point at which it would spit out a GPL comment if you started to write one. And I think GitHub have kind of swept that under the carpet a little bit, knowing that it will eventually, one way or another, it will come down to a court case and a court will make a decision. 
I don't want any part of code that is potentially in that situation in anything I write. So I, yeah. I have not used Copilot. I will not use Copilot for that reason specifically. But the, the text generation, the image generation, the music generation, I think are a little bit, because I'm only playing around with them, um, I don't have that fear so much with those. Well, they have that same issue. There's actually a lawsuit, I think, Shutterstock, yeah, because in yeah. they they saw, it, it generated images that even had the... the um, it's, uh, yeah, Getty. The watermark still on it, Getty, that that is it. You know, and it was clearly trained on yes. on copyrighted material. And, you know, obviously artists, there's the others get copied. I mean, that's... Thousands, millions, billions of hours of human effort. Let's not try and solve that problem today, though. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, we, we're both a package short because we sniped each other's packages, so we yes. we, fill, <laughs> we fill that with uh, with chat. About. I think that is that that may be the deepest rabbit hole we've been down on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. My second and I guess final pick is is not new. I don't even think it had a release uh, recently, but it came up in a in a, uh, a little thread on Mastodon um, this last week, and it's called Periphery um, by Ian uh, Leach, 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 I'm not quite sure. I think Leach, yeah. Leach, yeah. And the question was whether it is possible to detect unused imports in Swift code. And I immediately thought, well, if there's a tool that can do it, it has to be Periphery. And I checked, and unfortunately it can't, do that and to my knowledge there doesn't exist a tool that actually does do that but that sort of reminded me that um, periphery is there and, and that is actually a great tool to to deal with other things that you might have in your code it detects um, these kind of staleness issues where you remove something and then you you don't remove other parts of it because they're not these are things that the, the compiler can't check for you but periphery can and these are cases like unused functions or unused properties something that you might have declared public because at some point you used it across modules but you aren't anymore and these are just examples it, it checks a whole lot of things and and these aren't things that the compiler will tell you about right there's nothing in the compiler that will tell you well this function that you used to use but you remove the only use of that and now that is effectively you know code that you're lugging around and possibly maintaining but actually not actually using and periphery can go through that and actually see that and and it gives you warnings and and, and a nice report you can even have it click through like if you have a client that that supports these uh, links from the terminal it actually sends you to the proper uh, line in the source file to to fix it could even you can run that manually. Obviously, you can even add that as an automation to your CI workflow to have, like, you know, as a warning or even an error if you have issues. Um, and it does have a have support for annotations to opt out. So if you have some things that you know you do actually need, but you don't want to be warned about every time, you can just uh, put a little annotation in a comment to tell it uh, to ignore that sort of um, area of the code. So I think that's a really nice complement to all the stuff that the compiler does for you, like type safety and all that. And this is this is really nice to cover that aspect of your code tidiness and, and health um, to check for these kinds of things. That's Periphery by Ian Leach. Yeah, it's a great package. And it's like you say, it's been around for 
quite a long time now. I think it was originally, in fact, I know it was originally a commercial product uh, that was then turned into uh, an open source tool. Ah, okay. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it's been open source for quite a long time now. And uh, yeah, thoroughly recommended from, from me too. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's it for this week, isn't it? I think, uh, yes, our our open AI discussion took all the time and we're, we're actually running a little over our normal episode length. I think so. Uh, apologies for the slightly extended edition today. We will be back in a couple of weeks uh, with more news and more package recommendations. And I will speak to you then, Sven. Yeah. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.